Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan. Today we're going to be talking about from God, in quotation marks, to God. And that means it's just how to bridge the gap between, from the last episode in this series, um, one good reason to believe, which is just a few episodes back. We're, we're continuing and building off of that one and progressing to talking about the resurrection of Christ as a historical event. And this one is the middle one between those and trying to just put forth some things to bridge the gap between the two. Um, we took a couple weeks off to go over the general resurrection, and now we're returning back to our three-part series. Uh, and let me take a minute to restate um, what that was going to consist of. Uh, one, from origins to God. And by origins, I meant the discussion of how we got here. And by God, I simply meant a general understanding of a God concept. Um, I argued this point in the last episode, mainly using logical and philosophical arguments. And I mainly argued from the biblical creationist worldview, that which belongs to a Christian. So we talked a lot about worldviews and presuppositions and those sorts of things. In uh, the second part, which is the one we're doing today, uh, we go from a God concept to the God of the Bible. How do you distinguish between all these God concepts? And in this episode, I'm going to argue that it is the God of the Bible who distinguishes himself apart from all of the God concepts in the world in a way that makes belief in the God of the Bible justifiable. This is going to be pretty short because I believe the definitive point for deciding this issue will be in next episode, the third part, and that is defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or the gospel. In the next episode, I will argue for the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical event, and therefore making it justifiable to believe it. And I will plan to argue this point using the minimal facts. Um, that is, I will mainly use the data or evidence that is accepted by critical scholars. By scholars, I mean those that have degrees in the appropriate field to speak about the subject matter. If someone has a degree in biology, then they don't have any authority to be a source in the discussion of God. They really don't. They're speaking outside of their field. And that's evidenced whenever you hear people like Richard Dawkins talk. Who even Anthony Flew said he didn't do his homework. It's outside their field unless they cite someone who has studied it. So using the minimal facts method, I'm going to take the evidence that is accepted even by atheistic and agnostic New Testament scholars and show that even with the limited evidence that the majority accepts, the resurrection of Jesus Christ should be considered a historical point. And now it's important to emphasize that if you haven't listened to the first episode I did, One Good Reason to Believe, then you shouldn't listen to this one yet. And I'm going to be talking with the assumption that you have listened to that one. Um, I don't want to have to re go over a lot of those things. There's a lot of terms and those things that have to be explained and kind of developed a little bit if you're not f familiar with them. We're building off of that episode in this one, and it's not really going to make sense independent of that one, unless you are familiar with the subject matter already. There's a lot of sort of rebuttals that would come to your mind that were pretty much already dealt with last episode that I'm just not going to go over again. And so it's going to, you're going to kind of get lost unless you're familiar with the subject matter already. Now, some people are not going to like how I deal with things in this episode, and that's inevitable. Um, I'm pretty brief with some points because I believe... They don't need more than that. But you have no right to assert something to the contrary unless you can answer the problem that I bring out and refute the reasons and data that I give in support of my arguments. Um, sometimes people want to reject a conclusion without dealing with the evidence and arguments that support it. And all this shows when people do that, um, contrary to what they may claim, is they really don't care about evidence at all. And I found that, that is a lot of people. Um, a lot of people have made an a priori commitment to something, and there's nothing that can dissuade them of it. Now, in the preceding episode, I argued for the impossibility of the opposing worldviews, um, using what's called the presuppositional argument. And I'll be using the same standards at some point in this episode. 
Um, so let me reiterate the three criteria that we used to examine worldviews last episode. Um, first, arbitrariness. If a worldview is arbitrary um, or it gives no reason to believe it, then you literally have no reason to believe it. It's just someone's opinion and nothing more. Um, the problem question for something that is arbitrarily stated is why. Something that is arbitrary cannot give a justifiable reason to believe it. And if something is true, it cannot be arbitrary in that sense when this discussion that we're having. Um, second criteria is internal consistency. If a system of thought, a worldview, which includes religions, is internally inconsistent, then it cannot be true. And now we're not talking about apparent contradictions. I'm talking about actual contradictions. Reality bears witness to consistency. The universe is consistent with itself. And therefore, if a system of thought doesn't, you know, isn't consistent, um, then it cannot be true. Um, third, the preconditions of intelligibility or the preconditions of knowledge. These are those things that are necessary for knowledge to exist. That it's necessary for things like the scientific method to actually function, um, for us to be able to learn anything. It is a great long list, um, but we only focused on a few things in the last episode. Um, these are things like the laws of logic, the uniformity of nature and the inductive principle, the reliability of memory, the reliability of our senses, etc. And you can tack onto it things like mathematics. And these points were described and elaborated on in detail in the previous episode. Um, and that's why you need to have listened to that one first. Now, in getting into this, um, I will say that um, I didn't know when to necessarily specifically talk about this in passing, and so I'm just going to insert it here. And whenever you go out and you talk to people who are not Christians, which some people who listen to this episode might not be Christians, um, there is this assumption that when things such as the Bible or religion in general um, claim anything of faith, they misconstrue that to mean that there is nothing to support them, and that's incorrect. I was uh, talking to an old gentleman in um, Chick-fil-A one time, and he made that – he went to Wake Forest University, graduate studies and all these things, and I corrected him about the matter. Um, just because the Bible, for instance, says that um, salvation is by grace through faith, or it says that you have to accept it by faith, it's not actually talking about there being no evidence. That's completely contrary to what the Bible itself says whenever God says that men are without excuse – um, and the Lord specifically mentions in chapters in Isaiah um, that, you know, it's verifiable in all of these things in several different passages in the scriptures. Um, what it's talking about is that salvation, you know, um, accepting salvation um, from God and those things, it's to be accepted by faith. Faith is the means by which those things are appropriated to a person. And that really bothers me because, one, it's completely without merit. And two, it shows ignorance in the person who says it. Um, and nothing bothers me more when people make assertions like that with absolutely no basis. And, and you know when you talk to the person that they haven't even checked it. Um, and so whenever we talk about God and these things, we're not talking about something that does not have evidence, that does not have reason. At least not where I'm coming from. And uh You'll see, I had, think I had to mention that at a certain point, because that's a big misconception in certain groups of people. Um, so let's get into it. Um, let's first talk about God concepts. There are many different concepts of God, and usually if you read through the notes for this episode, you see I put God there in quotation marks. Some say that he is an impersonal force. Some say that he is a man who ascended to be enlightened. Um... And in fact, actually, things like Buddha actually are a word that means enlightened one. Um, others say that he is a she who is synonymous with nature. Or you talk about the um, the ultimate source, uh, the universal consciousness, and those sorts of things. All sorts of concepts. Um, there are a whole bunch of ideas that people have about God. So how is it that we break them down? 
I believe that we can ultimately ultimately break down all concepts of God down into two groups. One, those that claim to be based on special revelation. And two, those not claiming to be based on special revelation. And special revelation is what it is referred to when God directly communicates with or reveals himself to mankind or a man. It could be a vision or the communicating of scriptures, and any of thing that falls under that category would be special revelation. And so you have those who claim to be based on that and those who do not claim to be based on that. And this is a very, very important point um, because we're talking about God directly doing something. Um, but there is a question that comes up at this point um, for certain people that um, whether or not we can count on God having revealed himself. There are people who come all the way through, you know, disbelief, and they come to a belief that there is a quote-unquote higher power. And they say, well, how in the world can we tell that this higher power even revealed himself? And people write books and have discussions and dialogues about the issue. And I think that's a needless discussion. The fact of the matter is this. If God hadn't revealed himself, then we wouldn't be having this discussion about whether or not he exists. Um, if God had not intentionally put something of himself to be found in the created universe, to point to himself, to be discovered, then it never would have occurred to us that he existed. And since there are so many different God concepts in the world, it stands to reason that God has put plenty of stuff out there for people to find him. You really don't have to think too deeply about this for that to be, to be clear. And I basically pass over this issue and leave you with one challenge. When you absolutely refute all already established God concepts... Um, while meeting the three criteria of being non-arbitrary, internally consistent, and providing the preconditions of intelligibility, then we can have that discussion. Um, that once you've done that and you've successfully refuted all those other ones, one, send me a message and I'll point to you why you're wrong. And then two, we can talk about that and say, well, it's, if it's all not all of these, then it must be something else that hasn't been revealed. But unless someone has disproven all world religions, they have no basis to even ask the question. Now, let's talk first about the first group. The first group being those who are not based on special revelation. In these, there is no founder who had God, in quotation marks, reveal himself in some way to them, some special way to them, something directly. Um, there is no beginning vision or inspired writing to base them on. Now, what you should immediately realize about this group is that they're purely arbitrary. If a concept of God is not based on some form of evidence or objectively verifiable argument of some kind, then it is by definition arbitrary. It then gives you no reason to believe it. Deism falls under this category. Um, some people think that they've got it all figured out, and they miss this point entirely. And especially a lot of YouTube people. Um, one of the worst places to have a discussion about religion or politics is the YouTube's comment section, which is why on the YouTube channel for this podcast, I just block it. I I don't have time to deal with people who really don't want to have a discussion. They just want to have an argument. Um, though I'm free to be emailed, and people have found that out. Um, but deism is defined in Webster's Dictionary as the belief or system of religious opinions of those who acknowledge the existence of one God but deny revelation, or deism is the belief in natural religion only, or those truths in doctrine and practice which man is to discover by the light of reason, independent and exclusive of any revelation from God. Hence, deism implies infidelity or a disbelief in the divine origin of the scriptures. And that's from Webster's 1828 dictionary. Pretty much, deism is saying, yeah, I believe in God, I just don't believe in organized religion. Or it could also be stated, I believe in a God, but I don't believe that we can know him or that he has revealed himself to us in any way. Um, and there's a lot of people who fall under this category without realizing it. They'll say, well, I believe in God, um, but they don't believe in the Bible. They don't believe in any known religious system. 
that would fall into the category of deism, or at the very least, theism, which is a little bit more specific. The question that naturally follows the, those claims is, well, how do you know that? Deism is purely arbitrary. How is it that you can assert what God has or has not done, such as reveal himself, unless he has revealed himself to man? Um, and let me try to reiterate that. How can you assert that God has not revealed himself unless you yourself, it has been revealed that he has not revealed himself? You're not appealing to anything objective. You're not appealing to an authority that can be verified. It's conjecture, speculation, and opinion, and nothing else. And what most people don't realize is that deists are usually naturalists or empiricists, um, neither of which concept is logically defensible, like we talked about last episode. In my experience, deists are practical atheists or agnostics who don't want to have to defend their beliefs. And that's my experience. When you back them into a corner, that's what you get. They sidestep the issue of higher, accountab higher accountability by denying that it is knowable for no reason at all. Um, usually it's like, well, I believe. Well, I don't care what you believe. And this is, this, this is an issue a lot of people, especially young people, need to really think about. You can believe anything you want to. You just can't assert that it's true unless you give a reason. It cannot be considered true knowledge unless you give a reason. And this is why arbitrariness is the cardinal sin of rationality and logical thinking. You're not entitled to assert anything is true unless you can give a reason. And so I remember when I was talking to somebody at work one time about this, and I said, well, and he was kind of mocking me for being a Christian. And so I, I, I put him on the spot and I said, okay, what do you believe? And I, he couldn't even define what he believed. And so I said, okay, well, give me a reason for what you believe. And it took about 10 minutes and pulling teeth just I wasn't being belligerent. I wasn't trying to talk down to him. I said, no, I'm listening. Give me give me a reason why you believe that's true. And it was a brand new concept to him that his beliefs, he was supposed to believe something because he believed it to be true. And that's a lot of people. They just say, well, it's that whole, you just got accepted by faith and that's what I believe. I was like, well, no, I'm a Christian because I believe it's true. If I didn't believe it's true, then I wouldn't believe it. And I believe it's true because I have reasons. But people who take the deist sort of viewpoint, well, I just believe this and that, when, this just, when it starts with, I believe, you're being arbitrary, unless it's followed by, because, and you can give a reason, or an argument, or evidence, or proof, something. And anytime you just stop short and say, well, I believe, and you don't follow it up with a reason, then you're being arbitrary, and nobody has to listen to you. So that really sidesteps the majority of scholarship in philosophy. It really does. But they sidestep the issue of higher accountability by denying that they can know it, and they deny it with no justifiable reason. The same people cannot usually accurately describe Christianity at all. They really can't. Um, when they do, it usually comes with the same arguments that you get from an atheist which shows you where their belief system is actually rooted. But deism is sometimes touted as an argument against the presuppositional argument from our last episode, and their rebuttal would go something like this. You don't need the Bible to describe God to you in order to meet the logical needs of internal consistency, non-arbitrariness, and providing the preconditions of intelligibility. All you have to do is fill in the gaps with a God concept. Um... And, what and when they say that, what they're meaning is, well, whenever you see a need in your belief system or scientifically or something, just say, well, God did it. And, and then and that's the God that we'll believe in. That's, that must be God because that's that. And that's the, the God of the gaps mindset. And this whole rebuttal to the presuppositional argument is completely arbitrary. Um, in essence, it says, make up what you need to in order to account for things. And that's the definition of arbitrariness. If you can just make something up... In reality, it's actually idolatry, where you get to make a god to suit your own needs. What's funny is that's the same mindset of evolutionists who used the blind watchmaker analogy. 
like Richard Dawkins, if they have a need to explain something, well, they say evolution did it. Oh, it's the mystery of evolution. Evolution found a way. And it's actually a fallacy also, and that's just that's just pretty funny about it. It's a fallacy of reification. Evolution can't do anything because it is a concept. And so whenever they apply concrete to an abstraction, it's just a fallacy. And that's a separate matter, though, so I don't want to get off track and get off on evolution. We dealt with that last episode in passing. Um, now, let's. that pretty much is the entire basis of whenever there was not special revelation. There was nothing objective to verify it, and it's arbitrary. So any religious system that is based upon that, um, and I didn't put it in the notes, but things like Hinduism. Hinduism is not based upon an objective set of scriptures. It's not based upon... Um, a vision or founder and those sorts of things is actually a system that developed over time pretty much from paganism. Um, where there's 330 million plus gods, um, they'll accept anything. You ask a Hindu who actually knows Hinduism, and they will tell you that. They accept everything. And since they accept everything, contradictions mean nothing. They accept contradictions, um, which shows that it's not logical. It doesn't bear witness to the universe, and it's obviously not true. Um they can accept two mutually mutually exclusive statements together. Um, and they say that it makes perfect sense. And you can go do the research yourself. Hinduism, even though it's one of the leading religions in the world, is completely arbitrary. It has nothing to verify. It has nothing logically to sustain it, and it's indefensible. And I'm not trying to be insulting, but this is the discussion that we're having. And But Hinduism would fall under that category because it has no special revelation to verify. People say, well, what about the uh, the Bhagavad Gita and those things? Well, what those are is separate collections of writings. They actually contradict each other. Any And you ask a Hindu, they'll say any religious book is acceptable because anything goes. Um, there is no core set of beliefs in Hinduism. There's different schools of thought in it and everything like that. Um, and you have a break off of Buddhism that actually came from it, but it actually does not based on special revelation. So Hinduism falls into this category of being completely arbitrary. And so everything, whenever somebody says something to you and falls under that category where I believe this and they don't give a reason, um, just remind them that's arbitrary. They have no reason to believe it. And then whenever they – if they say they do, then ask them about it. And if it's opinion, if it's not something that is evidenced, um, then – push them about it. And if that's you, then you need to examine it. If you don't have a reason for believing it, then guess what? You don't have a reason to believe it. Um, and then go back to the three criteria about um, it must be non-arbitrary, must be internally consistent, and it must provide the preconditions of intelligibility. Now let's go to the second group, those based on special revelation. And this is usually the group that people think about when they think about religion. Um, so when we begin to look at this group, it's important to realize that we don't have to exhaustively discuss them here. We really don't. You don't have to go one by one by one by one and go over every single claim. You don't have to go into the Baha'i faith in depth and learn everything about it to see whether or not it's true. We'll go over a couple of examples in very, very briefly, um, some of the more prominent ones, and you'll get the idea of how to start breaking them down yourself. If you just start looking for arbitrariness, then you do 80% of the work. And that's why I continuously bring it up. Once I learned that and someone um, pointed that out to me, you really do see the majority of claims are arbitrary. And you usually don't even have to go farther than that. 80% of claims, even in the origins debate, are arbitrary. Um, but you know, just following along that, though, to be honest, you you really don't have – it's really not necessary to go much deeper than that. Um. But I want to emphasize also that these are only those that claim a special revelation. It doesn't mean that there actually is one. Um, people can spout all sorts of stuff and claim anything, but that doesn't make it true. Saying something without justifying the claim in some way is arbitrary, remember? And so it's important to remember, though, that we can't just throw out evidence. Um, evidence is interpreted. We talked about this last episode. Um it absolutely has its place, and it's very important, but we have to establish the presuppositions first. We have to establish the framework by which we can interpret things, and that's what we did last episode. Remember, we're building. Um, 
but it's by those standards that we can step inside of a worldview or religious system and examine them. And when they don't meet the criteria, they can't be true. Um, some people make the mistake of using the argument that because some of something is true, then the whole thing must be true. And they do. We usually do this unintentionally. Um, Christians do this, and it doesn't. It just means somebody's defending something badly. I used to do this, and a lot of people do this just without thinking about it. Um, and so what we do is we say, well, because some of the Bible is true, the whole thing must be true. Um, the same argument can be used for other religious texts. Islam references some things externally correctly, but does that verify all of its content or all of its claim? No, it doesn't. Um, you see why that line of argumentation is not very wise for people to use. Um, so we're just going to use our three criteria from last episode here. So let's very briefly look at some examples of major world religions and apply our three criteria. Non-arbitrary, internally consistent, provides the preconditions of intelligibility to see if they measure up. And I'm, like I said, I'm not going in depth here. So let's consider Islam really quickly. Islam, regardless of what is claimed by its apologists sometimes, is based on the Bible. Islam claims the writings of Moses, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy, the writings of David, and the gospel of Jesus. They redefine the gospel of Jesus, but they claim those themselves. Now, pay attention to this. There is no major world religion that predates Christianity that was founded on special revelation, where God specifically spoke and revealed himself to man directly. There is no major world religion that predates Christianity that was founded on special revelation. Every single example you think about happened hundreds, if not over a thousand years later. And what you'll find is they usually reference the Bible. Christianity is unique in that respect. Islam was 500 years after the completion of the canon of the Bible, and it relies on the person of Moses. It calls Jesus a prophet. It actually says he did miracles. He was born of a virgin and all these things. And it says that he was put on a cross. They just deny that he died. It mentions Mary. It mentions Miriam, um, the sister of Moses, and actually confuses the two too, which is pretty funny, and other biblical personages and events. The problem for Islam comes when they simultaneously deny it. That's internal inconsistency. They claim to be based on the law of Moses, which is filled with redemptive analogies and blood sacrifices for the atoning of sins. There is literally a verse in Leviticus that says, where God says, I have given you the blood for an atonement or sins. And that's a problem for Islam, though, because Islam does not allow for that type of forgiveness. There is no such thing as blood sacrifices for sin in Islam, though they specifically say they are based upon Moses. Um, this is a complete contradiction for Islam. The entire salvific process that which is laid out in Moses is ignored in Islam, which says it is based on it. They claim the writings of Moses, but then say that they have been changed. When asked for objective proof, they can't give it. Um, there is an a priori commitment to their philosophy. That means that they, they just accept it before they have any reason to. And there is a lot that can be said about Islam. But we'll confine ourselves to this simple point for now. It is internally inconsistent. It cannot be true. The apologetics that are used to defend Islam are ad hoc at best. That means they just make it up as they go. Um, they have a plug the leaks mentality. Um, they do not do apologetics in the way that Christianity does. There is nothing that is based on evidence in that respect. But just even on the internal inconsistency, it it is eliminated. And we can go a lot more in depth, but I think that's just enough of a point to show you how to use the pre these three criteria to examine things when you step into them. Um, let's, next, let's talk about um, Mormonism. Mormonism, like Islam, would not exist if the Bible didn't exist first. Both Islam and Mormonism claim to be a third testament of the God of the Bible but both completely contradict the first two testaments. There's the Old and the New Testament. In the Bible, the First Testament, the Old Testament, spoke of the coming of the Second Testament, the New Testament. But neither the First nor the Second 
in the which we we think of as the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Neither of them speak about a coming third testament. In fact, quite the contrary. They say this is it. This is inconsistency with both Islam and Mormonism. Um, the major problem with Mormonism is that it is polytheistic. Polytheism is indefensible because you get into this system where there's multiple gods. Which god is the absolute? Which god's standards is the rule of law? Remember, you have to have an absolute to underlie everything. Like we talked about, the chain of reasoning has to be grounded on something. Otherwise, it's a ladder that's just hanging in midair. It's relativism, really, with you get into polytheism. You cannot have a different god on every planet that has his own rules, which is what Mormonism teaches. Also, the Mormon gods change with time. They teach that God the Father is flesh and that he ascended to deity over time. Well, if God's nature changes, then the laws of logic, which reflect the way God thinks, could change too. And this undoes the preconditions of intelligibility. The polytheism and relativism negates any absolute morality also. Who's the absolute standard of morality? There is a whole host of problems with Mormonism, but I think that's enough just to get you an idea. Um, next list, Catholicism. Over a billion people believe it. Catholicism is a system that develops and changes over time. It is not a fixed standard of anything. It is not based on a fixed standard such as the Bible because their doctrine changes any time the College of Cardinals votes on something or the Pope speaks. You know, all you have to do is study their history. They have continuously changed their doctrine for at least 1,500 years. They claim the Bible and continuously contradict it. Just the other day, Pope Francis denied the reality of hell and says atheists can go to heaven too. That's, that contradicts a lot of scripture that's plainly stated. Um, I really don't need to say very much about Catholicism. Um, Christianity. For a detailed layout of how Christianity meets the criteria, listen to our last episode, One Good Reason to Believe. But hopefully you haven't listened this far into this one with me reminding you to listen to that one too many times. And so we'll just continue. Um, and this is – here, let me just move on to the next point, which is what do religions set forth as the way to verify themselves? Um, most people don't think about this. Um, if I was to go by this system, how does it tell me to verify that it's true? Well, this is very, very interesting because you see a consistent problem in the majority of world of religions. Um, consider Islam. In my copy of the Quran, um, the Abdullah Yusuf Ali translation, 10th edition, circa 1999 from Amana Publications, we have certain verses in certain surahs, and that's um, the word for chapters, that tell us very specifically how to know if the claims of the Quran are true. Let me quote them to you. Here's, well, at least one or two. Surah 223. And if you're in doubt as to what we have revealed from time to time to our servant, then produce a surah like thereunto and call your witnesses or helpers, if there are any besides Allah, if your doubts are true. Pretty much, its words are so nice that it must be from God. It offers no objectively verifiable point. And in case you accuse me of misinterpreting it, the commentary in my edition says this for that verse. How do we know that there is a revelation and that it is from Allah? Here is a concrete test. The teacher of Allah's truth has placed before you many surahs. Can you produce one like it? That's footnote number 42 in my Quran. The evidence is completely subjective. It's based on whether or not you can write something prettier than it. The same thing is said again in Surah chapter 10, verses 37 through 38, and in Surah 11, verse 13. Then, in Surah 17, verse 88, it says that even if all the world banded together and helped each other, it could not do so, could not write something prettier. Apparently, simple poetry is enough to prove who the real God is. The whole thing is completely subjective. Mormonism. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or the Mormon Church, does not fare any better than Islam. In the book of Moroni, chapter 10, verses 4 through 5, we read, 
And when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that ye would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. And by the power of the Holy Ghost ye may know the truth of all things. That's Moroni chapter 10, verses 4 through 5 from the Book of Mormon. How do you know that the claims of the Mormon church are true? Just ask God and he'll tell you by the Spirit. This is completely subjective. Um, and you think about it, it sounds a lot like the word faith movement, which says, you know, well, how do you, you just maybe you just didn't have enough faith. Maybe you just didn't say with real enough in sincerity. Um, in case you think that I'm twisting something, then go ask a Mormon missionary yourself. I've had them come to my door before. They never seem to want to come back. And that's where I got my copy of the Book of Mormon. They tell you to pray, just like this verse in their book says. And they say that the Holy Spirit will put a burning in your bosom. And you'll know because you'll have a feeling that makes you all warm and tingly. Again, it's completely subjective. Now, Catholicism. This one is really... I really enjoyed reading this and finding this. A lot of people think that Catholicism is the same as Christianity, and it's not. If you just read the Bible and take it at face value, then you will never come to Catholicism. Um, my wife actually messaged a Catholic radio ministry, which pretty much does apologetics and answers questions for people, and she asked them that specifically, saying, um, if I just read the Bible, would I get your doctrine? And they didn't answer. Um, but how can we tell if Catholicism is true? Well, if you Google that question, you will find the website, thecatholicthing.org. There is an article entitled, Why Catholicism is the True Religion. And I was a little excited to get into this. You know, let's get into some, exa um, some examination here. Let's see what they say so I can look at it. And so this article was written by David G. Benagura, Jr. He teaches at St. Joseph's Seminary in New York. Now, I want you to take this into mind, what he says. This is a man who teaches at a Catholic seminary. And he's writing an article called Why Catholicism is the True Religion. Now, you would think that when somebody who teaches at a seminary um, is writing an article asserting why their religion that they teach at a seminary is true, that they would bring out their best argument. And this is what the first four paragraphs of the article say. And I, I, I encourage you to go read it. And this is what he says. I recently met a man about 65 years old who, after I told him what I do, related this story. When I was in Catholic high school, I asked one of the brothers, how do we know that all of the religions in the world, out of all the religions in the world, Catholicism is the right one? This question had been bugging me and I was anxious to hear his answer. He replied, we don't know. We have to take it on faith. Sound familiar? His response completely deflated me. After we parted, I wondered how I would have answered that question. Of course, there is no external rational standard by which we can assess religions or many other claims that are not empirically verifiable. But that does not mean that we cannot judge religions or determine their truth. What we need is a first principle, an agreed-upon foundation and starting point from which we can evaluate the truth of religions. This principle ought to be intrinsic to the nature and purpose of religions themselves. For this first principle, I propose that we judge religions by how well, or not, they promote human flourishing. This approach does not exclude God nor reduce religion to a this-worldly self-help modus operandi. Rather, if we can agree on the Judeo-Christian doctrine that all human beings are created in the image and likeness of God, then as St. Irenaeus put it, we can say that the glory of God is man fully alive and acting according to his true purpose. On this foundation, one that people of all creeds can agree on, I state that Catholicism is the true religion because it, is, it most truly protects, nourishes, and develops the human being in his fullness. We can substantiate this claim by looking at Catholicism in three dimensions that are common to all religions, what it is, what it commands, and what it promises. And that's the end of the quote. That's the first four paragraphs of that article, and the rest of it is him developing those points. So the seminary professor of Catholicism says literally, quote, there is no external rational standard by which we can assess religions, which is completely false. And then proceeds to say that we need a 
first principle to judge all religions. The best thing he can think of is whether or not it promotes human flourishing. He then sums it up in one statement and then follows this line of reasoning with the rest of the article. He says, quote, I state that Catholicism is the true religion because it most truly protects, nourishes, and develops the human being in his fullness. Now, what you should notice is that it is an arbitrary standard. How do we define what is good for humans? To what objective standard do we run? In essence, what he says is, by what we know to be good for humans, Catholicism is good for humans. It ultimately makes man's own thoughts the standard for whether or not it is true. This is completely arbitrary and subjective. What if I disagree with your standards of what is good to promote human flourishing? What if I disagree with your definition of the nature and purpose of religion? It's not only arbitrary and subjective, it's relative as well. I was honestly expecting more from Catholicism. Now, let's talk about the New Age movement. Many would not count the New Age movement in the group of claiming to have special revelation and in the sense of how we're thinking of it. But I do because at the heart of the movement is a core set of beliefs that unify the entire thing. I asked Warren Smith, who has been speaking on the New Age movement for about 30 years now, I believe, what the litmus test is for verifying the claims of the New Age movement. And this is what he said to me. The litmus test is simple. If you awaken to the understanding and get it that you are God, you save yourself and then others with that understanding. Pretty much it becomes verified to you because you get it. There is nothing objective about it. Some have tried since the 70s, I believe, to verify the notion that God is in everyone by appealing to quantum physics. Um, and today you have people like Rob Bell, who was a heretic, going around to colleges with the same message that everything is spiritual. And physicists who have critiqued these presentations have laughed them off as not knowing what they're talking about. But the fact of the matter is that they are trying to appeal to it. Again, though, it's just an inner light, subjective scenario. You'll see it is true when you see it is true. It's completely subjective. Now let's talk about Christianity. What does Christianity say about itself to verify its, that it is correct? Well, Christianity is unique in this respect. It's unique in its apologetics. And you actually, I was looking for the quote that I heard from a lecture in, of uh, Dr. Harry Habermas, the, the chair of the um, philosophy department at Liberty University that I heard him say, and I could not find the reference, so I didn't include it. But there was a certain Buddhist scholar, scholar for Buddhism, who said, nobody does apologetics like Christianity because they use data. Now, it was coming from a Buddhist scholar, and I'll try to find that reference before next episode. Um, but it, Christianity is unique in its apologetics. It's unique in its beliefs. It's unique and it's proof. Jesus set forth an amazingly objective standard for how to verify it, how to verify him himself, how to verify his teachings as correct. Let me give you a couple of verses to show you. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's Matthew twelve thirty-eight through 40. And also John chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. Michael Lacona um, summed it up this way. He said, quote, When someone makes such a lofty claim, that is that he's the Son of God, critics rightly ask for the evidence. Jesus' critics asked him for a sign, and he said he would give them one, his resurrection. It is the test by which we could know that he was telling the truth. Such a historical test of truth is unique to Christianity. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, he was a false prophet and a charlatan whom no rational person should follow. Conversely, 
if he did rise from the dead. This event confirmed his radical claim. That was uh, Lacona and Habermas in the case for the resurrection of Jesus, uh, circa 2004, page 27. This is the definition of objective and verifiable. A teacher says, I'm going to die, and when I rise from the dead, you'll know what I said is correct. What more could someone ask for to verify a religion? There isn't any other religion that stakes so much on something so objective. Christianity is completely unique in this respect. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then Christianity in its entirety is absolutely true. There is no New Testament doctrine that does not touch the resurrection of Jesus. And so if we can prove the resurrection of Jesus, then we prove Christian doctrine. Now, before close out this episode... Uh, I want to talk about one thing in particular, just in passing, the legend theory. Um, and this is what some people have asserted that the claims for Jesus' resurrection developed over time and or were based on other early resurrection claims from other religions. Um, they say, well, they just made it up and they based it on other things that they heard. People such as Richard Carrier, and they waste your time if you watch it on YouTube. Commonly cited examples are Osiris, Tammuz, Adonis, Attis, and Marduk. Um, here are some reasons why that is just not true. One, the accounts in these other religions are often unclear and ambiguous. Um, for example, today's scholars actually don't consider these parallels by today's standards. And they're also completely unlike Jesus' resurrection accounts. Um, often such as with Osiris, there were contradictory accounts of what happened to him. I mean, it's unclear if he rose from the dead at all, and they really don't even know if the earliest accounts actually even included that statement. In addition to those points, the earliest clear parallel account is over a hundred years after the time of Jesus' death. So they didn't copy anything. This was the Greek mythological character Adonis in 150 AD. Jesus died around 33 AD. So who did they copy? Um, two, the accounts of these other things lack evidence and can easily be accounted for by opposing theories. Remember, if it's not, there's no evidence, it's arbitrary. Three, none of these can actually explain the evidence that actually it does exist for the resurrection of Jesus. You know, say whatever you want to. Say whatever you want to about those claims. Well, you still have to deal with the data that shows that Jesus did rise from the dead. And so this is just a ridiculous. And those people who know the evidence and know the data, and I'm talking about even atheist and agnostic scholars, as we'll see next um, next uh, episode, um, those who actually know the data, the majority of them almost unanimously do not take that viewpoint. And actually, Anthony Flew, one of the leading atheistic philosophers of the latter part of the 20th century, whenever he debated Gary Habermas about whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, he did not take that because it was completely indefensible. And you need to let that sink in. Nobody tries to defend that whenever they get into debates because you can't defend it. It's not true. Um, it's easily, verifiably not true. And so I really hope that somebody brings it up the next time I talk to them. But it's been said that there is a one-two punch for defending Christianity on an apologetic level. First, you have fulfilled prophecy. Second, it accurately describes the universe the way that it is. Um, it bears witness to reality as we perceive it. And we could talk about the Hittite Empire being rediscovered after over a thousand years or so and verifying the Bible when skeptics said that the Hittite Empire didn't exist. And we could talk about the science that verifies how the scriptures explain the universe's operation. We can talk about all that. But we would just be insinuating that problematic line of reasoning I mentioned earlier. If we say, because parts of the Bible are true, then all of it is true. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to leave any wiggle room to, for somebody to try to find a loophole. The linchpin of the whole God thing comes down to one point, essentially. Did Jesus of Nazareth rise from the dead? Jesus said that he was the only way to God the Father. He made himself the contingent of eternity. People's destinies, he said, are de contingent on what they did in response to him. That is an audacious claim to make. But he followed it up by saying, you will know that I'm correct when I raise from the dead. 
And so he made an audacious claim, and then he set something out completely objective for you to see whether or not what he said was true. The question then is, did he? It really is the only question that matters when you get the discussion going about God. And that's why next episode, that's what we're talking about, defending the resurrection of Jesus as a historical event. And that's also why this episode is, well, it's actually turned out to not be very short at all. I thought it was going to be relatively short because I only had about nine pages of notes. Um, but it actually turned out to be close to an hour. Um, but the entire issue is cleared up with whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. If you have that, then you have all of Christianity, as the Bible teaches it. You might not have any validation for what goes on at that church on your corner, but you will have every reason to follow Jesus Christ as the Bible teaches it. And so I encourage you to tune in for the next episode, which I've really enjoyed getting ready for. So in closing, I know this episode was well, supposed to be brief um, compared to others, but hopefully I at least provoked some new thoughts about some things. And I hope that you were primed to think about the resurrection of Christ in a different light. Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.